Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to take it out and open to Daniel chapter 5. We are in a series right now working our way through the book of Daniel. And we're going to be preaching Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Next week we'll be in Daniel chapter 6. Pastor Matt's going to be preaching, so we're excited about that. And then we're going to be taking a break from our Daniel series to focus on Christmas. And then we'll be returning in the new year to the second half of the book of Daniel. But Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And the theme of Daniel has been clear over the last several weeks when we've been working our way through the book of Daniel. We've identified that although Daniel is a really well-known character and someone that we can kind of relate with, that the focus of the book of Daniel is not Daniel, but God. That the overall theme of the book of Daniel is that God is greater than any earthly king or kingdom. And we can trust him. Do you believe that? That is the truth. If you haven't gotten that yet, hopefully you will continue to see that and be able to grab a hold of that yourself. God is supreme. He's sovereign. He's greater than any king or kingdom on the earth. And that's not just back in the day when Daniel was alive and this was a historical record. No, that is today. He is supreme, he is sovereign, and he can be trusted. But the other thing that we've been seeing almost in all these narrative stories in the first half of the book of Daniel is that pride is dangerous and God takes it serious. Have you seen that? Pride is serious. It's dangerous. And God deals with it swiftly. And so this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, And we're going to see that God is going to bring the Babylonian empire who had conquered Jerusalem and taken a number of uh, Jewish people to Babylon as slaves. Daniel and his friends were part of that uh, cohort from Israel that came to Babylon. And God predicted this. And today we're going to see it. God is going to bring the Babylonian kingdom, the most powerful kingdom at that time. He's going to bring it to an end. But what he's also going to do in our text this morning is he's going to humble a pride-filled king. This morning, I want to focus on God. I want to focus on his word. I want to elevate that for our attention. But there are a couple things I want to touch on that on the onset are going to feel like, man, this was the wrong Sunday to come to church. (laughs) The first one is I want to talk about pride. But the second thing is I want to talk about judgment. Yeah, see, I told you they're not, they're not good. But the reality is this. I want to highlight three truths that I see in the text from this story that I think are still applicable today. I want to make four connections from this text to the gospel, and I want us to land on one big idea. You guys willing to do that with me? Thank you for those 10. I appreciate that. (laughs) At the end of Daniel chapter 4, we see an amazing thing where the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had been so arrogant and proud, thinking that he was responsible for his kingdom, that God humbled him and made him lose his mind, literally lose his mind and act like an animal for seven years until Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God was the true God, that he was supreme and sovereign. And then when he acknowledged that, God restored his senses, restored his kingdom. And he came to the conclusion, we see at the very end, that God is the true supreme God and that he is able to humble those who walk in pride. 
Now, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, we jump ahead about 20 years in the story. See, Daniel wasn't meant to be a chronological day-by-day record of what happened during that. It's a time period. In fact, we believe that Daniel existed there in uh, the kingdom of Babylon for uh, many, many years. In fact, when we first see him come in, he's probably in his late teens, early 20s. And in Daniel chapter 5, he's in his 80s. And so we fast forward, and, and no longer do we see King Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. We see a man named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is dead, and, and, and there's a new king on the throne, but actually this king, Belshazzar, is, is not the king that we believe was the actual king at this time, and it's led many critics of the Bible to hold up Daniel chapter 5 as a, as a text that says, look at Daniel chapter 5, history and the Bible don't line up so the Bible can't be trusted. Because uh, Babylonian and Greek historians said that the king that was in power when Babylon came to its end was a man named Nabonidus. But yet here in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to see that it's King Belshazzar. And they say, see, look, Bible can't be trusted. Well, what we learn here through history and study is that if we, if we wait long enough, God is not, gonna, not, he's not afraid to verify his record. And so what has happened is there was actually some tablets dug up in, in the Middle East, right around the area where Babylon was. And these tablets had all these different, uh, different uh, writings on them. They were historical records They're called the Babylonian Chronicles. This is one of the tablets. And you can see it's kind of hard to read this morning on the slide, way up in the top right-hand corner. But in that section of that tablet, it identifies that at this time when Babylonia came to the end, Nabonidus truly was the king. But he had left Babylon and left his son, Belshazzar, as the regent, the one in control at that time. Babylonian history verifies the word of God. So, Bible's trusted we can trust it, what we're going to talk about this morning. There's a lot out there on that. And so we see that history tells, tells us that not only was Nabonidus the king at this time, but Belshazzar was the king. What had happened was, since Nebuchadnezzar had died, there was all kinds of these ploys and plans of power grab. And actually, from the time that Nebuchadnezzar died to the time we find now Belshazzar on the throne, there had been multiple assassinations and, and, and kind of compromises and conspiracies. And now we find ourselves, Nabonidus is on the throne. He has left Babylon and he's left Belshazzar, his younger son, as the king to rule over the city of Babylon. And this young ruler was proud. He was arrogant. One other cool fact that we don't have much time to dig into today, but why we believe that this is true and that history validates the biblical record is that throughout this story we're going to see today that uh, Belshazzar makes an offer that if someone can interpret this, uh, this instant, this thing that happened, this writing on the wall, that that person would be given the third highest position in the land. Why the third? Well, because his father was the king, he was the regent. The next possible position that they could offer was the third place. So history validates what we're going to read. But we fast forward here 20 years from the end of chapter 4, and we find this man, Belshazzar, on the throne in Babylon when God brings the Babylonian kingdom to its end. We're going to start this morning in chapter 5, verse 1. Hopefully you found it. And this morning, I believe that's something for all of us in the room. I believe that we're going to hear from the living, active word of God and that that can actually do something to change us, to grow us, to convict us, to encourage us, that can change us eternally. I hope you came to church expecting to hear that, expecting to see that from God's word. So if you're ready, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. It says in verse 1, King Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. 
Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels that his predecessors, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple in the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The first thing that we see here in these first four verses of chapter 5 is we see the delusion of pride. The delusion of pride. It's pretty incredible if you look at historically what's going on right now. Belshazzar is ruling. He's the acting king in Babylon. His father is gone. But this is not at a time when you think a a party would be thrown because history tells us that at this very moment, uh, surrounding the city of Babylon are the Persians. They have been defeating Babylon uh, and, and kind of conquering the kingdom, and they had kind of been shrinking in their power, and now they are circled around the city of Babylon. They're just outside. They're trying to figure out a way to get inside the walls. So this is an odd time for a party. But this is the thing that I want us to understand about pride, is that pride diminishes the reality of our weaknesses and our awareness to surrounding danger. When we let pride go unchecked in our lives, this wrong view of self, this elevation of our worth and our abilities, what we do is we are actually diminishing our ability to perceive danger around us and to be real about our weaknesses. And so what did this pride do in Belshazzar? Well, it led to this overconfidence. And the overconfidence is kind of understandable on one hand because Belshazzar, again, he's inside the walls of the city. This wall was the first wall. The outer wall of the, of the city of Babylon was 85 feet wide. They used to do chariot races on the top of it. They said they could put six chariots side by side and do races on the top of the wall. On, inside of that wall was a secondary wall. There was a moat that was filled by the uh, river Euphrates that flowed underneath the wall that brought fresh water into uh, Babylon, but also created this moat. There was a lot of protection. There's also the belief by many historians that at this time, Babylon had 20 years worth of supplies inside the wall. So what is Belshazzar thinking? They can wait all they want outside the wall. They're not getting inside. I'm safe. I'm secure. And so what does he do? I think there would probably have been word that had been traveling in and out of the city that the Persians were kind of mounting an offensive and they were having some victory. And so they're, they're surrounding out there. And maybe there was some, some unease and some concern inside uh, the wall. And so what does he do? He throws this huge party. Because what pride does is it doesn't only make us overconfident, it, it causes us to be in denial. And so we see his denial here. We're going to throw this party and we're going to just, we're going to act like there's nothing that can happen to us. We're so great. Isn't it cute how they're outside thinking that they're going to be able to get in and, and take us down? He throws this huge party and it says he has a thousand people at this party. And his denial led to defiance. They begin to drink, they begin to party. And he says, let's do this. Let's bring in those gold and silver vessels that we took out of Jerusalem and let's bring them in here. We're going to use them as part of our party. We're going to drink out of them and we're going to use them in our idol worship. What was he saying? Belshazzar is saying, this God, even this God that, of these people that we conquered many years ago, look at it. We have control over this God. We are defiling the instruments of their worship. 
These instruments were not to be used for that kind of thing, that kind of ceremony. They were, they were holy, they were sanctified, they were consecrated for worship, and yet they were defiling them as if they were common, drinking out of them and worshiping their gods in idol worship. Now you might think, well, maybe he didn't know any better. Maybe he was just having a good time and someone suggested it to him. I think he knew everything that he was doing at this point. We're going to jump ahead just real quick. Look at what it says in verse 22. It says, But you, his successor, speaking of Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. This is going to come at a point where Daniel's going to come in here in a few minutes. We're going to read it. And Daniel's going to kind of explain everything that's going on. And he's going to identify that Belshazzar, you have known about the true God. You know about what he has done. You know how he has humbled the kings that have come before you. And yet you have chosen to continue to defy the living God. This wasn't like, oh yeah, I forgot. I mean, we're talking not that long ago. He was aware of it. And yet he's saying, I think I'm greater than God. Nothing can touch me. He had an overconfidence in his riches. He had an overconfidence in his resources. And he had an overconfidence in his wise men. If I need help, I've got the best, smartest people around me. I know where to go if I need any help, but I'm not going to honor God. So look what happens. Verse five, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. Just imagine this for a second. Because what God's going to do here, and this is our second point this morning, is that we're going to see the supremacy of God. He says, He sees a man's hand appear and begin to write on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners, or diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this interpretation and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none can read the inscription or make out its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Imagine for just a second that you're in a room and all of a sudden on the wall behind you, you begin to see a hand appear and writing come on the wall. <laughs> Think about that. This is the most powerful guy. I mean, he's, he's literally partying in such a way that says, there is nothing that can touch me. I'm living my best life right now. There's no one that even can get near me. No one can, no one, they can't get inside this 85-foot wall across the moat. I got 250 watchtowers of men ready to fight them off. No one can get in here. And moments later, God is in there. And he begins to write this message on the wall. It so terrified Belshazzar that his face turned pale and his thoughts were so terrified that he soiled himself. He lost all control of his bowels. He began to, his knees were beginning to knock and he calls in the wise men and says, help, what does this mean? But he knew that something was wrong. Verse 10 says, because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. 
in the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of God's. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Now remember, this is a man who knew how God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. This man who had been as crass to say, look at this great kingdom that I have built. And God humbled him for seven years until he acknowledged that there's only one true supreme God. Belshazzar knew that, and yet was in rebellion against God. He was in denial. All those stories that happened to other people, they won't happen to me. Now remember, I want to highlight these truths because I believe they're the same things that we face today, the same temptations. Have you ever thought in your mind, yeah, that happened to them, but it won't happen to me. I'm smarter. I know better. I have more spiritual discipline. I know when to stop. I will never let it get to that point. Belshazzar's in denial. He's in this overcome. Why? He's proud. He's proud. And, and so God comes in and he writes this wall. But instead, when he sees that hand, and he knows, I mean, this is something supernatural. Instead of that triggering, uh-oh, I've offended God. I need to repent. I need to do what Nebuchadnezzar do. I need to repent and return to God and turn away right now. What does he do? He doubles down. He turns to his wise men. He would go to any other place besides going to God when things aren't going his way. Can that be said of you? When things start to spiral out of control and life starts to get a little bit wobbly, is your first place to, to recognize, I, I, I need to go to God and ask his help, or is I'm going to turn to some other wise man in my life to tell me, wise woman, wise person, that's where I go for what I need to do next. He doesn't repent. He calls them in, and they can't do it. And so his, his mother, his grandmother... Some of the texts are a little bit unclear on exactly who this was, but it says the queen came in and, and said, there is somebody who can help you, Daniel. And so they, they pull Daniel out of retirement. Again, he's 80 years old. They bring him in, and this is what it says in verse 12. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought in from Judah? I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you and that your insight, intelligent, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. How ironic that the God that they were mocking with their false worship, (laughs) they have to call in one of his followers to come in and help him at this moment. I just think that's ironic. Verse 16, however, I heard you about you and that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. What Daniel is going to do next is awesome. He's going to start not with giving him what he wants to hear. He's going to tell him the truth. Daniel starts with a history lesson. Look what he says. He says, Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. I I circled those in my Bible. Your majesty, even though he wasn't acknowledging God as the true God, he's saying, the one that actually is over you, your majesty, the most high God, gave everything to Nebuchadnezzar. 
You might think you've earned this. You might think Nebuchadnezzar was the one that was so smart and his power and might was able to secure his kingdom. No, no, it was God who allowed it. Verse 19, because of the greatness he gave him, all the peoples and nations and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from the people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys and he fed grass with, was fed with grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the, most, uh, from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which, you, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. Daniel comes out here and he starts with a history lesson and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Belshazzar, your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had this great kingdom. He could do whatever he wanted. He truly was the most powerful man in the world, but it was God who gave him that authority. And when he wrongly thought that it was his own doing, God humbled him until he acknowledged that God was the one who had done it. And you knew this, and instead of falling in those steps of wisdom, you've chosen to defy and deny God through your pride, your arrogance. You exalted your heart and you used his vessels and these cups of worship for your own defiled practices rather than acknowledging the true God. What we see here is that there is one God who gives and holds and controls the whole course of our lives. Do you believe that's true? See, this is not just true in Daniel's age. This is true today. That same God, the Most High God, is the one who holds and gives and controls everything about our lives. There's not a single person in here that is acting on their own desires and wills, thinking that they are set apart from God and that God has no authority over them. He is the creator. You are the created. I am the created, and therefore I am accountable to him. And so the last thing we see here as, as, as the story comes to an end is we see the reality of judgment. Verse 25 says, this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many take a parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Parson means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. You might have heard of that idiom, the writings on the wall. Did you know that actually has its origins in the Bible? It literally means a disaster outcome has been determined and is close to coming to pass. The writing was on the wall. 
God had said, I've been watching you, Belshazzar, and I have now rendered a judgment. I have determined the number of your days, and they are coming to an end. I have weighed what you have lived for in my just balances, and you have been found deficient. And now because of that, I'm going to divide everything that you thought was yours. I'm going to give it to somebody else. What's interesting here is that word deficient. Some of your Bibles in verse 27 use the word you were found wanting or you were found lacking. This truly is a terrifying thought. None of us probably like uh, those, those annual reviews that we go through at work or have maybe auditioned for something and now we're going to see if we made the cut or, or possibly we've applied for something we really want and we're going to hear if we got it. The, the fact of being told something we don't like and being found not good enough or not up to par or not having what we needed to have is a terrifying thought. It's an uneasy thought. In fact, many times we try to avoid those types of outcomes and we try to steer away from them because we don't want to be told that what our best was or what we have to offer is not good enough or not wanted. But that word deficient here, I think it's important because when he says your, your life has been weighed on the balances and found deficient, what he's saying is he wasn't weighing wealth. He wasn't weighing power. He wasn't weighing how much influence he had. He wasn't even weighing what kind of good works he did. He was weighing his worship. And his worship was found deficient. He wasn't a worshiper of the true most high God. He was a worshiper of himself. And so on October 12th, 539 BC, it's pretty incredible that we actually know the date because history tells us, other historians validate this, that on October 12th, 539 BC, the Persians found a way inside the wall. This wall that was 85 feet wide, then an interior wall and a moat and 250 towers. The Persians came up with an idea. We're going to divert the water from the river Euphrates that flows underneath the wall, and we're going to divert it to go somewhere else. And as the water levels drop, we'll walk in underneath the wall and we'll come in. This is not just the Bible's account. This is known historical fact that on this date, the Persians came in under the wall after diverting the river Euphrates, and they won a battle that they didn't even fight over. They came in, and the Babylonians were so unprepared, they never thought it would happen, they just took it over. Some even suggest that they were maybe, the people inside allowed it to happen. Or perhaps it was God bringing to pass what he already predicted in Daniel chapter 2, that Babylonian was the great gold head of that statue that Daniel had uh, interpreted the dream of, but now that was coming to an end, and the next section, the Medes and the Persians would take over. I think this is such an important thing for us to, to consider this morning. So this story is a story maybe you've heard before. A proud king and a kingdom coming to its end. But I, I couldn't help but read it this, this week and think of these connections that I see to the gospel message based on some of the statements. Can I, I just want to highlight that for us this morning. Do you know that just like Belshazzar, we have sinned and are without excuse? The Bible tells us here, and I put a lot of extra scripture in the notes that you can look up this week, but the Bible tells us that we, too, have no excuse for why we've rebelled against God. We can never claim, well, I didn't know, I wasn't aware. Belshazzar couldn't do it, and we can't either. There are none of us that can make an excuse, and that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us 
if our lives are weighed out in the balances of God's just and righteous scales based on what we do apart from God, we will all be found deficient. Do you know also that we've all been appointed a set number of days? The Bible is clear that every one of you have, the number of your days has already been determined by your creator. Do you know how many days that is? Do you know how many days you have? I don't know how many days I have, but I know it's numbered. And when those days come to an end, I will stand before the Lord. Do you know that we will all stand before the judgment of God? Now, I know this is, a, again, a scary thing, pride and judgment, not feel-good things to talk about. But the reality is the Bible is very clear. There are two judgments that are coming in the future. One judgment is for those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ, and the other is a judgment for those who choose to reject him, who choose to live in their pride and denial and defiance of the Most High God. For those who have believed in Christ, their judgment is a judgment for how they have lived their life after they have believed. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment, and our lives are going to be put on display, and they're going to be tested with fire. And what remains are those things that were actually spirit-empowered, God-glorifying actions. Because why would we not stand and, and, and on the balance be kind of judged for our sins? Our sins have already been dealt with through our faith in Jesus Christ. He paid for our sins. So I don't need to stand before him to have my sins dealt with. That's already been dealt with on the cross. I've received Christ, and now I get his uh, gift of salvation. He takes my sins and replaces it with his righteousness. So now I stand before the Lord as a believer in Jesus Christ, no longer deficient, but sufficient in him. But those who have not believed in Christ, those who have not believed in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth as the Son of God, lived a perfect life that you and I could not live, was crucified on a cross to pay the penalty, the physical penalty for the sins of all mankind, and then rose again from the dead, proving that he was God and that he had conquered sin and death. Those who have not believed in that, they still have sins of their own that they will give an account for. That's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought to stand before God knowing that I'll be found deficient. In Revelation, it says that those who have chose to not believe in the gospel, who have not, who've chose to not receive the free gift of salvation, those will be sent to hell. Another unpopular word today. And this idea, this reality of judgment that we see in Belshazzar, that we see in Scripture also applies to us, that we will all stand before a judgment before God, in the future. This is something that offends us. In fact, this is some of the things that when we see these stories in the Old Testament, it might cause us to go, I, I don't want to serve that God. That seems harsh. That judgment seems unnecessary. Why wasn't he more kind? Why wasn't he more forgiving? Isn't he a God of love? And there are some people who say, I reject Christianity because I can't reconcile this Old Testament God that seems to be a God of judgment and this New Testament version of God in Jesus Christ who seems to be all about love and mercy and forgiveness. And what they fail to see is that this is the same God. Do you, do you know this, that it says in Lamentations 3 that, that God does not afflict from his heart. No, from his heart flows grace and mercy. His desire is that all who would hear about salvation would turn to him and repent and receive the gift of salvation. His desire is not to judge anyone, but he does it in his righteousness because he's a holy God. 
We can think of judgment as being this unfair thing that causes me to say no to that and to feel justified in my position of rejection. But the reality is that if you're alive right now and you're hearing this message, this judgment is true for you and yet you have an opportunity right now to change how you stand before the living God. All of us do. And so we have this terrifying thought of standing before God someday, like Belshazzar, only to be weighed on the balance of what we have done in ourselves, which the Bible says are worthless deeds that are tainted by sin and to be found deficient. Or we can accept by faith the good news of Jesus Christ and not have to live with that fear. the big idea that I want us to hit on or want us to see this morning is this, is that in Christ, the terror of our deficiency is replaced with the confidence of gospel sufficiency. I think what terrified Belshazzar in that moment when the hand appeared is that it reminded him that he wasn't supreme. And he remembered what that God had done. It was a terrifying thing. You and I don't have to live in that fear. We have the opportunity to believe in the gospel and to have our sins forgiven and no longer have to live in fear of that kind of judgment. But there's one other thing that we see here in this text that also is true for us, and it's this, that we won't take anything with us when we die. We might think, okay, yeah, pride is for those who are right now living in open rebellion and rejection to God, but I'm a Christian, so I've got that pride thing kind of handled. And I hear the chuckles in the room. That means we know we don't. It's going to be a constant test for us. Because what is pride? It's a self-focus. It's caring most about me than anything else. It's about building a kingdom of my own making and my own liking. And so we'll build a kingdom that makes us feel secure. We'll build a kingdom that's based on what we can gain and what we can collect as resources. We'll build a kingdom based on certain wise men and certain people we trust to be around us, to be our informers. And we might even include church into our kingdom as long as it fits and makes us feel good and tells us what we want to hear. But in reality, all we're doing is building a kingdom of ourselves. A kingdom of pride. And we're working so hard to build this kingdom because we think it is the end of, of life. It's the purpose of life. We're, we're working so hard to build a kingdom of our own making because we want that security. We want that relationship. We want that job. We want that influence. And we want it. And we realize that when our days come up, we don't take it with us. It's given to somebody else. There's a story about a man who who had a son, and, and his, his father loved art. And so he raised his son to kind of know about art, and he taught him all the different things. And his dad was an art collector, so he had all these different art pieces that he had collected and shown his son. And, and so his son kind of developed a love for art as well. And so uh, they had this great relationship. But one day the son felt like he, it was kind of impressed on him that he needed to answer the call and go to war to defend his country. And so the son came to the father and said, I'm going to go enlist. I'm going to go serve in the military. The father, this was his only son, and was a little bit saddened by that. And so he said, okay. And so he, he hugged the son, and he hugged him tight. And he said, be safe. And the son went off to war. It was just a few weeks later that he got word that his son had been killed in an act of heroic bravery trying to save other people, had taken a bullet straight through the heart. 
has devastated the father. His only son gone, never would see him again. A few months go by and there's a knock on the door one day and, and the father goes and opens the door and there's a man standing there that he doesn't recognize with something, a package underneath his arm. And the man says to him, Sir, I was with your son. Your son saved my life. I'm standing here because of your son's sacrifice. And I'm not the only one he saved. He saved many people. But before he died, we got to build a relationship. And he started to tell me about you. He was so in love with you. He, he loved you so much. He, and he told me about your love for art and his love for art and how you had taught him that stuff. And so I, I don't know why, but I just felt like I, I wanted to try to paint a picture of your son t- for you. So he handed the gift to the father, and the father unwrapped it and saw this portrait of his son. And it was a terrible painting. This was not a professional painter, but it had a resemblance of the son. And so this father, with exquisite taste and having the wealth to purchase truly beautiful works of art, Rembrandt's and uh, Van Gogh's, had this picture, and he took this picture of his son, and he displayed it on his mantle, and every day he would look at this picture of his son. Well, there was hubbub in the town as word came out that this father was close to death. And there were many other art enthusiasts who wanted access to his paintings. And so the day came, the father passed away, and all the paintings would go on to auction. And so they came to an auction, and there was a room full of people hoping to bid on these priceless treasures that this man had accumulated all these years. And so the auctioneer comes out, and he takes the gavel and starts the proceedings. He says, the first picture we're going to put is the picture of his son. And he puts up this picture, and everyone in the room is like, what? We didn't come here for this. Let's get to the good stuff. He says, I'll take $100. Who would give me $100 for this painting? The crowd starts to get restless. They start to, come on, let's just get, this is not what we came for. No one wants this painting. Well, the auction was taking place at this father's estate. And so there was a gardener who had been there and had gotten to know the father and the son and loved them both. And so the gardener was there and he overheard and he didn't have much money there, but he heard what was going on. And so the auctioneer began to lower the price. And finally, the gardener raised his hand when he had enough money to buy that picture of the son. And the auctioneer hit the gavel and said, sold to the man for $10. He then says, and that concludes the auction. Everybody goes crazy. What's going on? What about all the good stuff that we came for? Why can't we get those paintings? And the auctioneer said, it was the father's decision that whoever bought the son gets it all. Do you know that scripture is really clear that we can build a kingdom of our own, but whoever wants to gain his life will lose it? Do you know the Bible asks a very specific question? It says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? Meaning you stand before the Lord, you're judged deficient, and all your stuff goes to somebody else. Jesus said, whoever wants to gain his life will lose it. Whoever gets the son gets it all. This morning, we're going to wrap up with the Lord's Supper. And hopefully as you came in, you were able to get some of the elements here. And I'm going to invite AJ and the team to start making their way up and get set up. We're going to play a song. But here's what I want us to do this morning. Daniel chapter 5 is another story of the danger of pride, the supremacy of God, and the reality of judgment. And yet what we have this morning is an opportunity as believers to respond to God in remembrance.
But this morning, as they, as they come up here and play a song, the Bible tells us that we are to take this juice and this bread and we are to do it to remember what Christ has done for us. When he came and he gave his body and it was broken on the cross and his blood poured out and was shed for you and for me, that we are to remember that. But we're not only to remember what happened in the past, but that you and I are actually called to anticipate what's to come. Jesus is returning. All of us will stand before him, either in glory or in judgment. But this morning, I wonder this, did you come to church anticipating that there was something that God maybe wanted to do business with even this morning? As you hear this story of a man who got lost in his pride and he was stubborn and he would not resist that and he would not uh, reject that pride and turn to God. No, he stayed in his pride and the outcome of that was he was found deficient. There's some of you here this morning that perhaps you don't have a relationship with God and you need to know that your days are numbered and as terrifying as that sounds, I don't mean to scare you, but your days are numbered and you will stand before the Lord and your life will be weighed on his just scales. And this morning you have an opportunity to hear the gospel, the good news that he loved you enough that even though you were rebellious and proud, he came and he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again. And he says, that's all I, all I want from you is your belief. If you will believe in that by faith, you will be saved. I will pay for those sins. I will place my Holy Spirit inside of you and you will never walk alone. There's some of you who need to make that decision this morning. But there's a number of us in here who have faith in Christ. But you know, if the truth, if we were really inspected, if we could pull back the curtain of our lives, our life has been a life filled with pride. Pride has a lot of manifestations. It's not just looking arrogant. It can even be self-loathing because that's still self-focused. That leads you to build a kingdom of your own making. And this morning, perhaps the decision that is needing, God wants you to make is say, God, will I, will I finally say, no, I'm not gonna live for my own kingdom. I'm not gonna try to control everything. I'm not gonna be about me. I'm gonna be about you and I'm going to follow you. I'm gonna Repent, which means I'm going to stop what I was doing that was far from you and I'm going to walk towards you and I'm going to receive your guidance and your counsel and your love as a follower of Jesus. We're going to take communion here in a few minutes and, and this is something that, that believers are called to do. And so if you are uh, uh, in relationship with the Lord, if you're a child of God, you've placed your faith in the gospel, we invite you to take this this morning. But scripture is clear that every time we do it, we shouldn't just do it as kind of a practice or a habit. We should take a moment to examine our hearts. And so as I play this song this morning, I just wanna encourage you, would you take a moment to examine your heart? Would you take a moment to consider, God, is it time for me to stop my rebellion, stop my pride and say, I wanna follow you. I believe in the gospel. Or is it perhaps a moment for you to say, God, I'm tired of building up my own kingdom. I know what's true and I haven't been following you. I've been trying to add you in when it was convenient, but I wanna push away my kingdom and I want to walk with you. My encouragement to you this morning is to, to ask yourself, are you ready to leave differently than you came in? And for some of you, the question I want you to consider as we get ready to take communion is this, are you ready for the Lord's return? Because he's coming. Let's prepare our hearts.
with the bread this morning. In scripture, it tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his 12 disciples and he took the bread and he tore it and he gave it to them. And then a few hours later, he'd be betrayed and he'd go to the cross. But it's because of the fact that he gave his body for us to be broken and torn that he says to you and I this morning that if you believe in him, you don't have to be fearful of that judgment. He already took it for you. His body was broken for us. And so it says, you have no longer need of fear of judgment if you believe in me. The Bible tells us on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, this is a, my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup and passed it around and they all took a drink. But the cup doesn't just represent what happened in the past for us. Yes, it represents the blood that was spilled on that cross, that that blood that was shed for you and for me. But also helps us remember looking forward to when he's coming back and he's going to make all things new. We're going to stand with him. It says on that same night, he took the cup and he gave it to them. And he says, this cup represents my blood, which is given to you. As long as you drink it, you do so in remembrance of me. He went on to say, Paul goes on to say in in 1 Corinthians 11, that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and he is coming. Amen. My hope is this morning that as you've been examining your heart over these last few minutes, that there's possibly some of you who've made a change. You said, I'm not leaving today the same way I came in. I've chosen to follow Jesus or I've chosen to to push away my pride-filled, self-built kingdom to follow him. If that's true for you and you'd like to tell somebody or like to have someone pray with you, we'll be standing up here at the end of the service. We'd love to pray with you. Even if it's about something unrelated to this morning's message, we're here for you. Let's sing one more song in response to our Savior. We love you guys.